Park. It's an 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedural novels, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's podcast looks at book number 40, Tricks. My name is Paul Abbott, and to review this book, I'm joined, as usual, by Mr. Stephen Royston. Hello. And Mr. Morgan Brown. Hello there. And we're still doing this remotely. I had hoped that this would be our first face-to-face one since everything. We, you know, we would have come round and sort of stayed distance, but done it all together in the same room. But Merseyside is now under a no meeting people inside your house or garden rule again. So that's scuppered that, hasn't it? So that's nice. Oh, dear. So who knows when we'll be all back together in the same room doing this anyway. It's very bizarre, but, you know... It's not like we're alone in this situation, is it? Uh, no. Soldier on, we will. We will. We anyway. will indeed. We're going to get cracking pretty quickly with this one because we we did a book recently, which was Poison, which book 39, which was one of the, the first of two in 1987 that come out. And this is the second one that we're moving on to here, Tricks. This is the, it comes out in autumn. So before we get stuck into this, though, I'll do a little bit of a review of some key points in 1987 i've only picked out one or two here due to the uh, unremitting bleakness of history <laughs> as seems to be the case well i mean anyone think of anything that happened significantly in 1987 i can't quite remember no we were quite small weren't we we were so as you were there was a general election in the uk i know that there's some unremitting bleakness yeah definitely <laughs> mark three <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Thatcher calls a general election in May 11th to secure a position for a third term, essentially, doesn't she? She does, yeah. And wins it in June of that year, so the Conservatives win the election. Mm -hmm. What larks. Yeah. But at least as it got into autumn slash winter, we had something a bit more joyful to to consider. That was on October the 11th, when a million-pound expedition, which was called Operation Deep Scan, happened. Now, can you guess what Operation Deep Scan was about? Oh, I reckon they were surveying the bottom of the ocean. Not far off. The Mm. uh, the Antarctic. Sillier than that. The moon. (laughs) No, 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 it's still a body of water. Journey to the centre of the Earth? I don't know. (laughs) No, no mole men involved. Uh, Trying to find Atlantis in the Mediterranean. Yeah, you're heading towards Cilia, but it was actually they scanned Loch Ness looking for the the monster. Yeah, (laughs) that that makes sense. And guess what? They didn't find it. No. Did did they not just think to blow their thistle whistle? Exactly. They they missed a trick there, didn't they? They should have watched a a, a documentary that was running on children's television at the time. (laughs) That's it. That's the novelty news item from the <laughs> from the history that I've got here. Because on October the 19th, you have the Black Monday stock market crash. Of course, yeah. Which, which basically sends the world's finances into free fall. Mm-hmm. But, oh, I suppose this is a bit brighter, though. November the 1st, British Rail set a world speed record. Steve-O, how did they do that? A world speed record? For diesel traction, yeah. Oh, right. Well, for diesel traction, yeah. I suppose the Intercity 125, probably. It was exactly the Intercity 125 mm. at about 148 miles an hour. Yeah. Crazy. Diesel traction, a mode of traction that even other countries had given up on. All <laughs> oh, right, okay. Still, we had the record. 
We did. Yeah, That's what so matters. Very impressive. You can only win it if you're in it, can't you? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then back to usual. November 6th, uh, Florida rapist Tommy Lee Andrews is the first person to be convicted as a result of DNA fingerprinting. Yeah. So I only mention that because we're obviously going into a period of talking about crime stories where this may be a thing in the future. Mm. So he gets 22 years in prison from from that. Intriguing. And now the real drama happens on December the 10th, though. The Nasdaq Stock Exchange, you know, it's already had quite a bit of a, a battering from the Black Monday crash. Yep. Is, <laughs> on December the 10th, it closes down because a squirrel nibbles through a telephone line. <laughs> the final straw. The final squirrel. <laughs> the final squirrel. Yeah. So this that's basically what happens in 1987. It's, it's some hilarious things and uh, some terrible things and lots more terrible things, which I didn't mention. Fair uh, enough. But one thing I probably should mention, which is, you know, terrible in its in the situation that it was, which is that you see a lot of more news stories in the papers and reflected in the literature, fiction, all the popular culture, is obviously AIDS is becoming a very mm. well-known thing, the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. So it, by 1987, it's generally known by most people what it is, and it's it's sort of being discussed a bit more. Yeah. And I think it's sort of symbolic that, that 1987 is when Freddie Mercury finds out he has AIDS as well, you know, as, as a huge high profile case. And again, I only mention that because it plays into some of these books now as a thing that's okay. in the, you know, in the culture at the time. So that's 1987. So we will come straight away to what Evan Hunter was up to. And yeah, I've not, not much else to add from the last one because it didn't do much. <laughs> I mean, he was writing books, obviously. Uh, and the only thing I forgot to mention last time, I mentioned last time that he was on the Wogan show. Oh, yeah. He also appeared on an episode of the Dick Cavett show in America. And listen to this lineup of people he was on the on the Dick Cavett's talk show with. I mean, firstly, it was, there was Sister Carol Ann O'Meara, who herself was a crime writer, a crime writing nun. Mm-hmm. He was also on with Robert B. Parker wow. and Mickey Spillane. Blimey. A fair old lineup. Yeah. yeah, so these three sort of veterans of crime writing, you know, including Mickey Spillane, who's quite a character, yeah. and uh, and then this nun sat at the end, <laughs> and yeah, I managed to find a small clip of it, that, but it was just cut down to the Mickey Spillane bits. Sadly, yeah. so you can see Evan Hunter on it, and I shared that on the on Twitter and stuff. So I missed mm. out uh, mentioning that that was in 1986. As for 1987, he doesn't have anything on TV or in the films or anything like that mm. at all. So there's nothing to mention there. So we can get now onto the book. And I will say, up front, this is the first time I've read Tricks. Oh, right. Okay. So are you both excellent. veterans of this story? No, the first time for me as well. Oh, excellent. All oh, right. Okay. But Steve, you've read it before. I have indeed. Yes, I have. Yeah. Well, this will be interesting then. I don't know whether it is. Is this the first one where two of us have read it for the first time? It might be. Possibly, yeah. It could be, yeah. Outnumber the, uh, the reread. Yeah. Ah, well, that's interesting. That will make for some interesting discussion because I feel like I've quite a lot to say about this one. Yeah. I'll give the facts and figures. It comes out in Arbor House Hardback in 1987. Comes out in Avon in 1989, paperback in America. Hamish Hamilton, 87, in the UK for hardback. And Pan in 1988 in the UK. And it's the last book that's going to come out in hardback by Arbor House. He moves on to a new publisher as of next book that we get to. 
and we get he gets through quite a few between now and the end of his career. So, <laughs> so we'll see a few little sort of blocks of publishers rather than like we've had for ages, sort of huge runs. Even in the UK, in fact, that starts to happen. Mm. And something that is really interesting is the dedication in the front, and it's to a guy called Russell William Hultgren, which is a name I doubt anyone's heard of. Nope. It took a little bit of hunting out who he was. I did discover that there was some reference to letters that he'd written to Ed McBain in Ed McBain's Evan Hunter's archive. Obviously, I don't know what the content of these letters is, but it says who you know this correspondence is between. So I found out that, that uh, Russell Hultgren, uh, Hultgren sorry, wrote for a book called The Bibliography of American Fiction and he did the entry on Evan Hunter. <laughs> so they had a link there. So obviously he was in communication with him to get, I assume, to get the facts and figures for this. You know, the details about his career and his writings. Because we've got correspondence between 1983 and 1991. And then I discovered that there was a thing in the archive listed as the 87th Precinct Report. Ah, yeah. Russell Hultgren wrote a fanzine about the 87th Precinct in the 80s. Crikey. So obviously I wanted to find out all I could about this. And there is literally... Two pictures on the internet of of an issue of it, yeah, and and about two entries because it was there and gone. A lot of fanzine culture is very ephemeral, very yeah. sort of it, people make it, pass it to their mates, it goes, no one records it. Yeah, and this is you know this is the eighties as well. It wasn't online, so so you know, don't know how long it lasted for, anything like that. No, I I found that there was a reference to what a university library, I think in in America, holding a copy of it, but it was only one copy of it. So I don't even know if it got past issue one. Yeah. Wouldn't it be amazing to track uh, track one of those down? Yeah. And the funny thing was, the only images I could find of it online were on um, Abe Books, which I sometimes use for looking at. It's like a Discogs for books, if no one's ever yeah. used it. But I use that a lot of the time to see if I can find the cover images and things like that. And it was someone who was selling a copy of... I don't think it was Tricks. It was something else. But it, it came with a copy of the 87th Precinct Report that someone had just tucked and left inside it. <laughs> And that's where these two pictures were of the front and the back of, of this this fanzine, which was presented like a police report. Wow. So stapled in the top left corner, and then it's like six pages of typewritten stuff with Russell Hultgren pretending to be, you know, Lieutenant Hultgren type thing. <laughs> and it features something that we can't do on, on this. It features correspondence from Ed McBain himself. Wow. But annoyingly, because I can only see a little bit of the front page and some of the back page, I can't see all of it. So there's even even this little tiny bit that was really interesting because this is summer of 1983 it came out, this one that I've seen. And it, McBain says that, and it's he says, the book he's planning to, to write after Ice has, quote, a tentative title of Kisses. Yeah. The book after Ice isn't called Kisses. Mm. And Kiss comes out in 1992. Mm. So clearly he's got that idea in his head. And he also talks about how he's been putting off bringing the deaf man back. Oh, right, okay. Because, again, he was thinking about writing a book called Killjoy after Ice and putting the deaf man in it. Killjoy, almost like Lovejoy. (laughs) Yeah, in which the deaf man poses as an antiques dealer. (laughs) It's really interesting. I bet there's tons of really useful information in there from this correspondence between Hulkgren and McBain, and it's... uh, so I, I really, if anyone's out there listening and they knows anything about this at all, I'm sure everyone would love to know more about it because it's it's like it's like we're doing this with a one and only podcast dedicated to the 87th precinct, but someone's done this fanzine in the past, mm. you know. And one of the things you can read on it is him saying, 
imagine you're questioned by the police, what are your top 10 87th Precinct novels? Send in your answers type thing. Oof. So so he's compiling a list and, and stuff like that. Imagine you found out it's still going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you still have to write off to an address and get it sent to you on paper, imagine. Yeah. Cool. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So that's that's a that's just spun off from me trying to find out the dedication from this. So. Well, it proves that like forty episodes in, and you're still finding out fairly uh, really interesting stuff that you never even heard of before. Yeah, it's it's amazing that these things still pop up. So we better get onto the book, and I'll just say up front, uh, spoiler alert: there will be spoilers, <laughs> especially in this book, which is chock full to the brim of stuff bearing in mind that the one we just had was Poison, which was like an intensive character study piece. Mm, it was, yeah. So I will I just ask, I'll ask Morgan, I mean, have you got sort of a, a general first impressions of this? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it, there's a lot going on, isn't there? <laughs> You've got, got quite a few sort of um, major plot threads and lots of, as, as I guess McBain likes to do, lots of, different plays on 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 the, the meaning of the title as well oh tons of that a, a different sort of kind of trick that that links to each sort of major major plot line and yeah lots of um lots for sort of the whole squad to do really yeah some interesting stuff with andy parker it's um yeah definitely an interesting one a good sort of ensemble piece for for, for the for the squad yeah, there is a certain amount of hail, hail, the gang's all here about it, isn't there? Mm. Uh, and Steve-O, coming back to it, do you remember what your impressions were before you started reading it again? Do you remember what you thought of it? or was No, it I, I, it's funny, I can't, uh, which, which is all the more odd, because having finished reading it, I thought what an absolute brilliant entry it was. It is, yeah. which made me think, why didn't it stick <laughs> out in my head? But yeah, there's so much going on, and there's... A lot more, like, yeah, for like Vandy Parker getting a lot more. Steve Carella, I suspect more than, I can't think of another entry in which he's less featured in. Can, mm. can you guys, you know, other than, um, other than he's shooting, he is scarcely in this book, is he? I think the only other one he's not in is literally the second book in the series where he's, he's off being married. Yeah. So that's kind of a major departure, and everyone else is kind of almost level pegging. I suppose Eileen Burke's the main character, if if there was to, to be one. But um, yeah, just a lot happening. All the plots were interesting, and you weren't exactly sure how they were going to pan out, really. I know his dialogue's always very sharp, isn't it? But I thought it was particularly so in this. Lots of overlapped conversations going on wasn't there yeah. yeah and he didn't just do that once it was like pretty much all through the book when he when he had the opportunity and there was also a bit of silliness as well going mm-hmm. on as well well not silliness but just you know his classic kind of quirky characters cropping up yeah yeah so i just got the distinct impression that it was a really top-notch read really coming back to it Oh, that's. I think your two experiences jive very much with my own. I mean, one of the questions we get asked quite a lot, and it does the rounds on on you know the various media, is is which book would you recommend to a first time reader? Yeah, yeah. And blimey, I mean, you, I don't think you could go far wrong with this, no, could you? Uh, yeah, yeah, it it, tick, it it ticks a hell of a lot of boxes, and yeah, uh, yeah, I think I think uh, you, you'd struggle to find a, a stronger one that showcased a lot of the normal tropes. Yeah, because even though it's got 
characters are in a relationship together. It doesn't do anything in the story where you need necessarily to know masses of detail about their backstory. You just get into, you sort of like hop into their relationship channel and see where that plays out over the course of the book. Yeah, exactly. And it's very, yeah. it's very clear how he does it without, I mean, there is lots of nods back to things that have happened before, mm. but it doesn't feel like it's a, it's there necessarily to just say, here, dear reader of the series, I'm rewarding you. It feels like good backstory that you wouldn't even, you might not even think there was any books before this. You'd mm. still accept it for what it what it is in terms of the callback to like O'Brien and the shooting at Christmas and stuff like that and the various other weird occasions. And you wouldn't be able to tell it apart from, say, the stuff that Andy Parker's saying where he's talking about all the different cases he's had that he yeah. might write a book about. Yeah, he he's particularly a good read in this, isn't he? Really, he's, uh, he's yeah. painted in his best ever light. Well, you you see you see him in his best light, I suppose. Really, he's uh, he's quite <laughs> he's yeah. quite he's quite funny. It's not redemption for him as a bad cop necessarily, but it is. No, but a little bit of what happens to him at the end is like kind of proves that he puts that first if you see what i mean doesn't it yes yeah it does so, give him something it, it, yeah yeah it's it's hard to explain i mean we should probably try and explain what the various plots are right. in this. yeah i'm not sure did, did he count them i don't i didn't count them but we can count them as we go along i suppose yeah bearing in mind this all takes place over the course of about 12 hours or something on yeah. unsurprisingly yeah. halloween night funnily enough this episode's coming out at the end of september not the end of october so but you know <laughs> People are already buying their Halloween uh, stuff, bits and pieces. Oh, yeah. I'm sure, uh, so this can feed into the uh, the build up for, for them. So they've got they've got extra two extra men on the squad, haven't they? Because of the trouble they're going to think they're going to face. Yeah. So that's, that's a bit of an excuse for him to have more characters involved than normal, really. I suppose from the get go. Yeah, it's jam packed. It's quite a nice little fake opening as well. Yeah. But yeah, we get straight into Andy Parker. So Andy Parker's one of the main <laughs> plots in this, isn't he? Yeah. Well, Andy Parker's thing is here. He's talking about I should just write a book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But of course, we late in later in the series we have Fat Ollie's book. Yeah, mm. that's true. Actually, yeah. So this is a bit like a dry run for that idea of like cops writing books. Yeah, he has a bit of a mention of Joseph Wambau, doesn't he? And. Yeah. Uh, uh, somebody else I can't quite remember. So I don't know. He's not yeah. really having a go. He's probably just commentating on the, um, you know, kind of something that's cropping up in the literary world as he, he, yeah. he often does, doesn't I he? I think one how he refers to as Wamburger. <laughs> he does, yeah. I'm not sure who the other ones are a reference to. Cornick. I, mean, I feel certain that. Um, oh, is that Cornick? Uh, that, that's. that's uh, or Koenig. Isn't there ah, an author called yeah. Simon Koenig? Yeah, I'm sure you're right. Oh, it might be. Yeah, I'm not sure, actually. I should have checked um, that, really. But, I, uh, I don't know. No, it's got to be somebody else, I think. <laughs> yeah. I just like the idea that Andy Parker's got this thought in his head that if you write a book, that suddenly you're, you can go and live on a yacht in the south of France. Yeah. And you're going to be made. You know. So I think it's it's McBain saying that a little bit about like being... He's one of the most successful writers of these books, and he's, he's sort of saying, yeah, it's not quite like this. <laughs> I mean, I think he did all right, McBain, but, uh, yeah, I don't yeah. think it was yachts in the south of France all right. <laughs> but, yes, he's, he's regaling. Well, he's just... He, he can't be asked, basically, can he? You think there's too many people in the squad and the others are working hard, and he's just uh, recalling lots of previous crimes, isn't he? 
saying he's going to write a book about them, which gets him thinking about uh, a woman called Peaches Muldoon. (laughs) Which is a brilliant name. Uh, And reminiscing about her. And so, yeah, that's the beginning of his thread, isn't it? So I suppose we'll come back to Peaches in a bit. Yeah. And before that chapter's out, we have Gennaro ringing up, (laughs) having found another piece of a body. Oh, yeah, 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 behind a restaurant or something like that, isn't it? In a garbage container. I do wonder if, if McBain was just feeling quite, I don't know, kindly towards his characters because he does something for Gennaro in this book as well That's right. that sort of redeems him from some of his his daftness. Yeah, maybe. With it being the 40th one, whether he... I don't know whether it is one of those kind of like almost celebratory entries mm. where he just thinks, ah, oh, sod it, I'm going to have everybody in this one doing all sorts. And then just kind of got that feel to it, maybe. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. But yeah, so we've got so we've got Andy Parker moaning about having to work and deciding to go and look up a woman he once met in a case. <laughs> we've got Gennaro, who's discovered a bit of a human body and wondering why this is happening to him again given that that's how we met him in yeah. Give the Boys a Great Big Hand. Then what do we have? We have... I'm trying to go through it in order, in a way. Is it the magician, then? So, yeah, there's a guy who goes missing, who is a, ironically is a magician. So he's doing a show at a high school, isn't he? And he is. his wife is uh, his assistant, and when they're packing up, his car and the helper and have disappeared entirely and a lot all a lot of his tricks are just dumped in the uh, the high school car park aren't they yeah. you know inferring that some some something's happened really it, there's no signs of a crime but something's wrong and so you've got a missing person well t- two missing people uh, two missing vehicles mm. um, and the kind of an abandoned wife because um, they live in the next state, don't they? So she's kind of at a yeah, loose end water. Um, in the city. So obviously Halls takes her out for tea. Of course he does. <laughs> Did anyone spot the name of the high school where the magician was doing the show? Uh, I can't remember it, no. Well, it's called Herman Roucher High School and Herman Roucher was a Brooklyn-based screenwriter and novelist. <laughs> so he's about the same age as McBain, give or take a couple of years. So it's quite likely that they were mates, probably. So he's he's been immortalised in the name of the high school in this book. Wonderful. Excellent. I was going to say, actually, before that plot line comes in, I think we've got the the Aileen, Aileen Burke thing coming in as well, haven't we? All uh, still in yeah. that, that first chapter. Yeah, yes. I can't quite remember the order here. But... Well, no, so it's, it's, it's all happening at once, isn't it? So what's happening there then, Morgan, in that bit? Eileen and uh, Annie Rawls um, are discussing um, a case where Eileen's required to go and uh, work as a decoy. There's some, some helpful reminders of what happened previously to her, where she's she's now been had plastic surgery to mend the, the scar on her face from where she was cut up previously by um uh, someone she was acting as a decoy with but um obviously it's it's a, a return to that kind of work for her so it's a with a particularly nasty um criminal um in a particularly sordid part of town so uh, there's some uh, detectives from the 72 as well isn't there in that so you got even more characters um 
even be, even beyond the the normal squad. So there's uh, Shanahan, isn't there, and yeah. Alvarez, I think, who are quite in- yeah. interesting interesting characters involved in this well kind of entrapment. The, yeah, uh, the, the plotting at this um, bar come brothel in the. Uh, canal zone, as they call yeah. it. I was just trying. I was trying to work out where that canal zone would be. Which so mm. so it's uh, the stuff that happens with Annie Rawls and Eileen Burke takes place outside of the eighty seventh precinct. Takes place in the seven two, yeah. as you say, which is in Calm's Point, and um, it's yeah the canal zone where all these sort of bars that are also you know pick up places for for prostitutes, sex workers, uh, and Brooklyn does have a canal in it, mm. so the Gowanus Canal in Brooklyn, which is in Red Hook. So I'm assuming that's the area it's supposed to be in the real world. Seems likely. Um, yeah, there's, there's some good stuff with that, with the uh, the uh, undercover work, all the, the detectives from the 7-2 with their various disguises. There's also some good sort of insights into the kind of politics between the regular detectives and uh, Homicide as well, isn't there, I think? Yeah, because it seems Homicide have forced this kind of ploy onto the local detectives because they've not got any success. But, um, yeah. So you've got all, this, all these different strands all pretty much intermingled the all the way through the book, really, aren't they? Including a series of liquor store hold-ups oh, by of course, what yeah. appears to be For, children. Yeah, there's another one, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Some children holding up um, liquor stores and shooting dead the proprietors. Yeah, it's about as in cold blood as you can possibly get. It's literally, the scene is, it's a fake trick-or-treat. Some kids in costume run in, shoot the, shoot the people in these liquor stores. Like, not even threaten them, don't move or we'll shoot. Literally, just one of them just always shoots the person there dead, thus beginning this intensive sort of, you know, attempt to work out what's going on because they're in different costumes every time they come in. Yeah. Being driven around by a blonde woman, apparently. Yes, a large blonde woman. Yes, it's. Do you know what? This just—it's so hard to discuss this on a story level because there's just so much going on, and two or three of these things intertwine and intertwine and intertwine. And I mean, there is even like he's writing in a televisual sense, in that you have points where a character will drive past. One of the character, one of the other characters on the street from a totally different and disconnected sequence, yeah. and it's like it's like literally like you're doing a, a a camera fade where you stop following one person and move over to another, and it's it's uh, it's quite an extraordinary handling of this much information. I think for yeah. McBain, who can do this, we know, but I think it's possibly is best so far yeah, doing that sort of thing. No, I think it's very good. Yeah. I think the most, the most, uh, a lot of it zooms around here, there and everywhere. I suppose the, the longest prolonged scene of the, uh, the book will be, is the kind of the stakeout, isn't it? The entrapment in this Larry's bar, yeah, uh, which goes on for quite a long time. And you, you can kind of feel the tenseness in that, mm-hmm. can't you? The, you know the ebb and flow of people coming in and suspects, and is it him and uh, the, the the Shanahan guys in disguise? So you don't know who he is either, and so you kind of see everything, but you kind of don't at the same time. It's very cleverly done, really. It's quite an exceptional thing to have that much happening outside of the precinct itself, when there's that much happening in the precinct too. And one thing I do want to mention, 
because we've been critical of it before, and rightly so, is his handling of women, I think, in this book, is much, much better than it's ever been. Mm. I, w- I can still do without the description of cupcake breasts over and over again. Yeah, <laughs> I, could, I could probably live without women being repeatedly described as racehorses as well. Yeah. But in terms of actual characterization, there's there's a lot more to go on here, isn't there? Definitely. Yeah, and so like Eileen and Annie together don't necessarily spend their entire time talking about Cotton Hawes and Bert Kling. They hmm. talk about their job as as members of the police force, which is which is such a nice thing to have because it makes them so real as characters and gives them the you know much more life even though the jobs they do obviously impact on their personal lives, but they don't spend the entire thing talking about their personal lives, which is the temptation with female characters for a lot of authors. Uh, That's something I I think it's definitely noticeably better in this book. Mm -hmm. Again, aside from cupcake breasts. (laughs) (laughs) He probably probably can't help himself, can he? (laughs) He can get that impression. Yeah, but I'm sure he isn't alone in the sort of books you were buying on the shelf, uh, you know, off the shelf at that time anyway. No, and to this not. day, to be honest, sure. yeah. So I've got I've got a list of in, of points I've I've seen. I've mentioned a couple of them. Yeah, Parker, for instance, who is a bad cop. We've been told repeatedly how bad a cop he is. I mean, the most human we've seen him is when he thought Steve Carella was dying or dead, mm. and that's where he sort of cries himself to sleep. But in this book, what I think is amazing, it takes this awful cop who's skiving off work essentially to go and sleep with. Peaches Muldoon, <laughs> which again, amazing name. Yeah, he finds himself going to a fancy dress party where he just decides to go as a cop because that's how he's dressed, <laughs> and and by pretending to be a cop, actually starts to feel like a cop. Yeah, and like really enjoys himself, doesn't he? And he's like totally, totally yeah. alien feeling to him. Yeah. <laughs> So when he starts putting the effort into sort of behaving in the right way, he actually starts to take on those qualities. It's a, it's an interesting psychological twist to the character in that actually he's got it in him, but he is so lazy in, in the majority of his life. So that actually by the time he has to do something, he's been in the mould of being this fake good cop that he actually sort of is a good cop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's a bit... Mad, isn't it? <laughs> very well, very well done, though. I really enjoy those passages with Andy Parker at the party. <laughs> they're fun, yeah, they're funny. Oh yes, this is an important one. There's one line in this that is something that we often talk about: precinct time. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. He refers to that, doesn't he? That's quite late on, isn't it? When he going on about precinct time can seem like an an age in real life or something. Yeah. So it's when they're reflecting on how Bob O'Brien is the unlucky cop you always end up getting in a, a firefight with, essentially, if he's on, if you're partnering with him. But yeah, he says, some cops simply attracted the lunatics with guns on Christmas Day not too long ago. Well, not too long ago by precinct time, <laughs> where sometimes an hour seemed an eternity, which is, again, such a <laughs> acknowledgement of what this series is. So a, a lovely little McBain thing there. Yeah, it's cool. Did you notice the other self-referential thing in this? The couple who go to the movies? Yeah. That yeah. thing? A movie um, named Streets of Gold, if I, if I remember correctly. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we've got these two characters who've just come out of out of a film called Streets of Gold, 
And one of them is saying to the other, it's based on a novel by someone, <laughs> which of course it isn't. And there was a film called Streets of Gold in 1986. I think the obvious thing here is someone's made a movie called Streets of Gold. Evan Hunter has gone, hang on. <laughs> I wrote a book called Streets of Gold. He's probably tried to sue them. Yeah. I have no evidence except the sort of pattern of what we know about him. Mm. And in the end, clearly nothing's happened. So he's just written it into two characters in this book who are having a, a fight about about their relationship before they find... Is it a torso in a lift? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tor- torso in a lift, yeah. It's a way to put your troubles into perspective. Absolutely. So there's, there's plenty of little McBain Hunter references in here. There's even one about Hill Street Blues, again, funnily enough. Something about if, if Shanahan had capped teeth, he'd look like he was on Hill Street Blues. <laughs> so a little sly dig at the shininess of the characters in on TV. <laughs> Although, doesn't Maya Maya moan about the fact that Kojak isn't on anymore? Absolutely, yeah, because yeah, he's, uh, yeah, Kojak improving the, uh, the the image of bald cops everywhere. <laughs> yeah. A couple of real world things as well I spotted. There's a reference to the uh, some subway shootings in New York. Ah, right. Uh, which did happen in 1984, which was a, a thing that sort of prompted a, a question about a citizen's right to defend themselves and how much force you use, etc. And this is in, sort of in relation mm. to what's happening with Gennaro, I think, in the book. Oh, yeah. I think we should come to that in a second. But yes. also there's a thing about the Mies Commission, which isn't about how many mice there were, <laughs> sadly. it's It was a report that was done, an investigation, a report commissioned by Reagan into pornography. Oh, Ed Mies. Yeah. Mies's pieces. Um, I don't know why I said that, sorry. <laughs> Let's talk about Gennaro. Oh, what yeah. happens with Gennaro? Well, he becomes a hero, doesn't he? Kind of. <laughs> well, he at least becomes a slightly more serious sort of, slightly more serious cop in a way, doesn't he? I, I guess. Yeah, they describes it as his coming of age, I think, or something yeah. like that, don't yeah. they? Although it does involve him shooting four teenagers, which... Uh... Has the top brass in the uh, the city quite worried? But they were, they do sound like they were fire bombing a building at the time, and then tried to fire bomb him. Yeah. So um, he doesn't yes. exactly handle it calmly and professionally, but it's it's a bit of a step up from him just shooting himself in the foot, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. A little a little further on in his career, in terms of his decision making, uh, and the best thing about that is he gets interviewed by the news, <laughs> and so. He, You've got all these characters, like the top brass, as you say. I've got, I've got the names here somewhere. Let me just check them out because I had to. It's such a long list of people that are involved in this. We've got who have we got here? So Captain Frick is mentioned, but he's not in. So mm. the duty captain, who is called Vince Annunziato, is there watching, <laughs> watching Gennaro about to be interviewed on the news, and because you know Gennaro is such a <laughs> a dimwit you're thinking this is going to go horribly wrong and then it doesn't it goes perfectly perfectly well yeah. he just says the right thing doesn't he amazingly yeah yeah but you're sort of <laughs> waiting for it to go horribly wrong but it yeah it, it, it doesn't yeah so yeah D- duty captain vince annunziato is a name you've never heard before mm. probably never hear again and um the deputy police commissioner howard brill as well turns up later because in the liquor store 
holdups. Yeah, they stake one out, don't they? Because these this gang of children are moving north, and so they stake a, a liquor store out in which there's just like a massive shoot up. <laughs> mm. It's one of the least effective stakeouts I think anyone's ever done, really. Absolutely. Because of course, the, what the first thing that happens is this person who shoots everyone, this kid who shoots everyone, just shoots the cops as well. Yeah, after shooting dead the proprietor as well. So yeah, who's been showing yeah. off about his shotgun and how how he's going to defend himself? Yeah, that's pretty much Steve Carella's kind of lot in this. He has a few paragraphs earlier on, doesn't he? And then yeah, gets shot. Maya, Maya. Yeah, one of our followers on Twitter did make an interesting point that there's a there's a sequence where Carella's passed out from the you know the shooting and he's he's being uh, treated and we're in his mind which we've had before where where he's been under the you know under the knife and we've been in his brain as he's as he's trying to uh, decide whether he's living or dying inside his head and so there's a big section about it towards the end of the book but so yeah one of our one of our twitter followers whose name escapes me now because I didn't write it down sorry mentioned about the fact that He's, you know, Corella says, open him up now, open up the hero. Big editorial mm-hmm. conference out there, but no last minute edit- editorial decisions this time. No one here to say you can't kill the hero. Yeah. Which is, of course, a reference back to book three of the series where, where McBain was going to kill Corella off in a shooting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, he's turned it super meta, Definitely. put it inside Corella's head, <laughs> and, and, and this mythical editor. So there you go. I like that. It's good. But yeah, we better explain what actually happens with these kids. Ah, uh, yeah, but they get a bit of an insight, as luck would have it, because the um, one of the liquor store attendants who's who's been robbed, it turns out, has um, is a former trapeze artist. Is that right? Yeah, something like that with the Ringling Brothers Circus. That's right. Who uh, I think refers to to, to the um, the shooter as a woman, and and uh, I think. Corella possibly uh, corrects her and says, you mean girl? I'm like, no, I mean woman. I know a yeah. midget when I see one. And then that kind of uh, blows the whole thing a little bit more wide open, really, yeah, as to who they're looking for. It's a weird thing that I didn't see coming at all, no. that it was actually right. going to be a, a gang of marauding midgets, you know, from a circus. It's a strange one to say it out loud like that. But for some reason, in the context of this completely jam-packed, bonkers, intense book, seems okay. Yeah. We, we might as well link that yeah. up to the, the Andy Parker story as well, because the, these two end up plot-wise meeting up, because uh, at, at, at the last party that Andy Parker goes to with Peaches Muldoon, he uh, befriends the uh, yeah. uh, a midget, doesn't he, with a um, chaperone, which is the driver. And so it's after leaving that. Well, she finds out who she lives with and there's four of them uh, and gets her address. And then uh, it's when he's going home with Peaches Muldoon, he, um, he reads a newspaper about how the uh, uh, there's been all these holds up and the cops killed. And he then springs energetically into yeah. uh, being a good cop, doesn't he? And commandeers a police car and orders it to this address to go and make an arrest because he uh, yeah. because some of his colleagues his, have been so shot, his attempt so, to yeah. seduce yeah. this uh, small woman uh, while he's at a party with someone else somehow become conveniently brilliant detective work yeah yeah, yeah I mean it's if we yeah. try to explain before we finish up this episode how actually everything plays out in this 
we'd be here forever. It'd be a very long episode. Safe <laughs> to say, everything more or less gets yeah. resolved one way or another. The one thing that, that doesn't make any sense in this book, and I, and I mean, you could probably pick a few things, I'm sure, but there's a bit where they've got this um, dismembered body and they've got it in the in the mortuary and they've got uh, Carl Blaney there, the ME, looking at it. And he says, now you've got to correct me if I'm wrong here, but I need to query this. At this point, they've got the arms, the legs and the torso. Mm. They've got no head and no hands. And yeah. Carl Blaney says, I'll work up a dental chart for him. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'll work up a dental chart sometime tomorrow. Would you like to know who his dentist was? Someone asked. Or, you know, or would you know who his dentist was for for comparison later when we get the chart? How could they compare this? They don't have the head. Was he joking? I don't know. No, I don't think so. It's, it's either a blunder or Carl Blaney just having a very dry sense of humour, isn't it? <laughs> it would be the driest, given that this person's supposed widow is there at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah. I'd uh, not really spotted that. I didn't even spot that. That's ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I just I re- I've I've read it over several times now, trying to figure it out. But I think it I I think it probably is genuinely an an author's error. But maybe I'm just misunderstanding, and I'm sure somebody can correct me. And I wouldn't mind if they do because I'd like to know. Yeah, it's so. interesting. I just yeah, totally didn't spot that. <laughs> right. Well. We'll leave a few threads hanging because, like I say, if we try and pull this all together, we'll, um, yeah, we'll be here for, yeah, for ages. Good. And you, shall I give us uh, some reviews of the time before oh, we yes, give our please. own summing up then so we can see what people thought when this was released? So in The Guardian in uh, November of 87, uh, Matthew Cody wrote, so he describes the books as having this recipe which mixes the suspenseful, the seamy and the ironic with police procedures, which is now 31 years old, satisfies still. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't say much about it, just says it's still satisfactory. Well, We've got some Gerald Kaufman in The Listener in uh, January of 1988. His latest 87th Precinct episode, Tricks, exploits his penchant for narrative punning, the tricks in question including various kinds of deception, even though the outcome of the main story in McBain's customary multiplicity of plot lines is so standard that it can be anticipated well before the denouement, the book is so skillfully written as to be a delight to read. Gerald Kaufman worked it out before the end. Anyway, that's what he's saying. <laughs> Which bit? We don't know. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. And we've got the Washington Post, which claims that this is the 39th. Lots of things I found made reference to this being the 39th novel or the 39th <laughs> book. It's clearly the 40th, whichever way you slice it. Yep. It, I don't know if it's Gene M. White. It just There's no actual author's right, uh, credit on this one, but it's oh. normally Gene M. White writing in the Washington Post. It says... Some recent outings have been less than inspired and Tricks is another subpar entry. <sighs> Lately, McBain has seemed content to use the police blotter approach of Del Shannon. What? <laughs> not, not that Del Shannon, a different Del Shannon, I think. <laughs> not Del Shannon who did Runaway. Uh, that, that's what I was thinking, yeah. I was thinking, it, just, that, that didn't read very much like Hats Off to Larry, but... <laughs> no, no, I believe Del Shannon was an author as well. Oh, um, okay. Which is it is odd that you would use that as a name unless you were uh, <laughs> unless you didn't know about the other Del Shannon. True. But we come to the New York Times review by Newgate Calendar. <gasps> is he back? He's back. Oh my God. Or someone using the pseudonym, but I think it is the same person anyway. <laughs> he talks about that the men of the eighty seventh precinct are pros. 
professional police officers. As, of course, is Mr. McBain. He writes as easily as his words read. Few authors can produce shreds of dialogue and use up a couple of pages with them. There is not really much to digest in this kind of prose. It gives the outward appearance of realism, but it's in fact as substantial as cotton candy. <laughs> so he just does not like McBain. It doesn't. I mean, that, that was actually, that bit that you read at least was relatively kind of relatively nice by the standards of, of other reviews we've seen, but he, he doesn't like him, does he? Yeah, he says, what we get is an expertly manufactured series of literary furniture, all reading pretty much the same way, all serviceable, all predictable. Yeah. So it seems like the American reviewers are, are not that keen on tricks, whereas the British ones are a, a bit happier. So mm, Odd. Odd. Yeah. So shall we sum up then? And I, you know what? I'll go first because I haven't for a while, have I? And it was my first time read. I have few reservations about the book, and the reservations are cupcake breasts. <laughs> Carl Blaney attempted to work up a dental chart for a man with no head. <laughs> I think that's an, an additional positive. I'm not uh, factored in. <laughs> yeah, more points, please. Um, and I suppose if you're going to be really critical about it, it is it is ludicrous the amount of stuff that happens in this time. Not that I'm suggesting that, that this couldn't happen or this amount of stuff couldn't happen, certainly at busy periods. The, the, the fact of the coincidences and the, the intertwining of the plot is always where you sort of start to stretch credibility a little bit. But it makes for a much more enjoyable read, I think, if you're going to abandon the, your determination to be slavishly realistic. Mm. Uh so I'm not going to linger any f- any further. This is a 92 Police Shields book for me. 92. Excellent. So we'll have a first-time read, reread, first-time read sandwich here, and we'll get Steve out to go next. Okay, I was... Uh, the, the, the thing I was going to mention, though, I haven't, um, which I will do now, was um, I think I mentioned a, f- a few episodes ago about whether there was ever no one death man aside whether there'd ever been like a serial killer entry and yet it struck me that this is perhaps the first one really because the the guy that this canal zone killer it Mm -hmm. turns out is like a a multiple city serial killer isn't he yeah i suppose started in like kansas city and then chicago and is now hitting this city so i thought i thought that was quite different really um, yeah, just, we've, just, had, we've had the domestic serial killer for the city in lightning yeah which is when you first raised that point but yeah you're right this is more of the sort of like the fbi kind of yeah yeah National manhunt yeah so yeah because he talks about doesn't he that he's going to go into another city after this one yeah so i thought that was quite interesting but yeah uh, I, I, I suppose i summarized it in my opening gambit so yeah for all the aforementioned reasons i would mark this very highly and yeah i think i think i would go 95 i think it's a nine and a half out of ten entry excellent stuff right well we come to first time reader morgan brown fantastic yeah well i'm I'm gonna echo both of you really i think it's an absolute barnstormer really um it's over the top definitely but it's just fun you kind of get the sense that he's kind of having fun writing it as well there's all the little references loads of great character stuff some nice things happening to some of the more hapless cops although still mm-hmm. nothing nice happening to burkling who really isn't is he's his own worst enemy these days isn't he um <laughs> Yeah, we didn't even mention Bert, did we? <laughs> well, that's something for for, uh, for people to discover when they read it, isn't it, I suppose? But yeah, um, 
It's absolutely cracking. I think um, the, the couple of minor reservations we've mentioned aside, I'll slightly split the difference. I'm going to say 94 police shields. And that gives us a grand total. I'm sorry, I round down for these now. But um, it gives us a grand Kenneth total of 93 police shields. So that is not bad at all. No. Nope. Indeed. Take that, American reviewers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I suspect that's certainly the highest for. Uh, a little while, I would think. L- looking at the Kenneth readout that you sent before, I, it, it struck me that uh, whilst the high points and low points are pretty much same, the graph is a lot more jaggier, which infers more inconsistency in our scoring. So, you know, the highs are still as high, but perhaps the lows yeah. are a bit lower. They're just a bit more inconsistent, really. Yeah, sort of ping-ponging a bit more, aren't they, between the between the two? Yeah. But, yeah, we've shot back up there. And I think, like I said earlier, this is if you wanted to give this to a first-time reader, this might be the, the one to do. Yeah. Which, so, which, at at this level of quality and this level of content. Well, we, we might in a later episode just go back at the, the top-rated ones and the worst-rated ones and... Have a bit of a summary of those, really. Yeah, definitely. That's it's worth doing. Okay, right. Well, we'll wrap up for the main episode here. We'll we'll do the bonus episode for people to find out a bit more about the book covers of the original editions and the ones that we've got, and a, a little bit more fun from 1987 for everyone. <laughs> and the next book in the sequence is another one I haven't read, which is Lullaby from 1989 which we will be releasing a recording about Halloween, which we should have really done for this. But, you know, we've got to do these when they come along. We can't be waiting around. Otherwise, we'll be here until, who knows what, until a vaccine is invented. (laughs) Anyway, that's my, yeah, distant future thing. Oh, dear. Shut up, Paul. Right, I'm going to say goodbye anyway, so I'll say goodbye, as will Steve-O. Goodbye. And Morgan. Fairly well. (laughs) 